0: Good evening. On behalf of the uh, Board of Directors of the Pratt, I want to welcome you all Um, uh, It's another exciting evening. Judy Cooper and her staff, right over here you all probably know Judy, work hard through the year to make sure that that you are brought interesting and talented writers to the Pratt and tonight won't be any exception. I see a lot of uh, old friends that we have from time to time and also some new ones. It is through the generosity of foundations, corporations, and Pratt Society members that the funding for things like Writer's Life is made possible, and we're grateful for that generosity. Our guest tonight and speaker is Eileen Rockefeller-Growald. She's the youngest daughter of David and Peggy Rockefeller and one of 22 great-grandchildren, that the first generation known as the cousins of Standard Oil Founder John D. Rockefeller Sr., who was America's first billionaire. She and her five siblings grew up in a town home in Manhattan, a Tarrytown, New York farm, an island home in St. Barts, a home in Maine, boarding schools, and summer camps. Her father, a loving perfectionist, her late mother, a wit and someone who loved the rustic life, but struggled with depression and the demands of her role as a Rockefeller matron. Rockefeller-Growall is a graduate of, guess what, Oldfield School, and we want to welcome you all, you ladies here tonight. Uh, We're glad you're here with us. Um, Her history, secondary school, she has a BA from uh, Middlebury. Uh, In graduate school, she earned a, a Master's in Early Childhood Education may be a story that many of us are fortunate to share, but it's there that her history departs from the commonplace into what reads almost like fiction. As she writes in her memoir, not everyone can say that her grandfather restored Versailles. So that's the background. Arthur Rubenstein played piano at her home when she was eight. She counts um, George O'Keefe and Norman Cousins as influences, but the influence around her table, the implication around her table, she says, was that that big was the only visible good. Born to a family where success had often been measured in only the biggest terms, a grandfather who established the Rockefeller Foundation 100 years ago this year, elections as governors, corporate success, gifts of 30,000 acres to the national parks, those were the kind of things that were accomplished by family. Finding her own way to make a difference has been her challenge and her goal, and she's detailed this quest in a very sensitive and elegantly written book, spiced with humor, but not at anyone's expense. As enveloped as her life has been in the mystique of the Rockefeller name, this gingerly written memoir tells a universal story of how a family can plant the seed of who we are, but the challenge and the reward of the life is the task of that we have as individuals, that of becoming ourselves. So she's the first of her 22 cousins to write an interesting story, being a Rockefeller, and her story, Becoming Myself. Please join me in welcoming Eileen rockefeller Growwald.
1: Thank you very much, Pat. Such a nice introduction. In fact, I love introductions like that because I might not have to say so much, because you've well described a lot of what I could describe at greater length than I need to. So thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's a real delight to be back in Baltimore. Um, I was at Oldfield School, my long-ago alma mater for the first time in 43 years, I'm ashamed to admit. I never had visited again since I graduated. Did I, gra- did I visit once? Oh, that's when I stayed with you. Well, I did once, but it, I had it so separate in my mind from old fields. We have s- quite a few old fields, both teachers and students, had such a great time with the students this afternoon, reminiscing about good times and tough times as everyone has in their lives. Um, Being a Rockefeller, Becoming Myself is my first published book. I've had a passion for writing since I was eight. I've been a poet and a journal writer. I've written probably over a hundred journals, most of which I didn't bother to use when I was writing my memoir because it was just too depressing. (laughs) But actually, sometimes it's very useful to have those signposts. What I really love about writing is that it's an opportunity to connect with people like yourselves. I love writing stories, and I love even more connecting with people. So it's been a deeply rewarding adventure so far. Tonight, I'm going to talk about three things. First, I'm going to talk about what it was, and I don't know why that, oh, that's I was emphasizing the point, but... First, I'm going to talk about what it was like to grow up as a Rockefeller. And I'm going to move this over just a little so that I can take a peek. That way I don't have to turn my head from you, but I can double-check that I'm on the right slide. So first, I'm going to talk about what it was like to grow up as a Rockefeller. Second, I'm going to talk with you about why I wrote my memoir. And third, I'm going to talk about lessons learned. So, what was it like to grow up as a Rockefeller? First of all, this is not my house. (laughs) This was the house that was built by my grandfather, John D. Rockefeller, Jr., for my great-grandfather on the family estate in Sleepy Hollow, New York, and that's the Hudson in the distance. Um, So, I am the great-granddaughter of John D. Rockefeller, Sr., And my parents are the late Peggy and the current David Rockefeller. This was one of their favorite pictures. And I think it shows them in their happiest mode. They were a very happy couple. I'm the youngest of six, as was said, and the 22, youngest of 22 first cousins of my fourth generation. So currently, there are over 250 descendants of John D. Rockefeller Sr. Being a Rockefeller has led me to know a wide range of feelings similar as anyone else in this room. I've experienced embarrassment, shyness, fear, anger, sadness, joy, and more recently, increasingly, a lot of gratitude. Being public has not been part of my family culture, nor has a lavish lifestyle. This, I love this picture because it really um, personifies the sense of my siblings, and in a se- lesser sense, my father, to choose a more modest lifestyle and have a lower profile. But the process of writing this book has really helped me to embrace my name. I come from a family of wealth and influence. There have been many advantages, but it hasn't always been easy. I think of my grandfather John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s credo, which is etched in stone at Rockefeller Center. My grandfather is in the way back holding my father, and then in front of him is my great-grandfather. Grandfather said in stone, Every opportunity implies an obligation. Every possession a duty. Every opportunity an ob- did I say that one? Wait a minute. Every—let me start again. It's such a hard thing t- for me, even to this day, because it is a heavy mantle that I get it confused, and I'm dyslexic. So, once again, every right um, implies a responsibility. Every opportunity. An obligation, every possession, a duty. That was the sense of the values that I grew up with that if you have something, you need to give, give it away. But anyone can give away money, and as my grandfather said, not everyone can give it away wisely. And that's the real uh, challenge of it. So perhaps what distinguishes my family from other wealthy families of uh, old money and new is that there is this expectation that we will do good for others. And there's a second thing, and that is that we have the expectation that we will get together as an extended family twice a year. We do that in June and in December. And it's at those times that we rekindle our relationships and deepen other ones. So to give you a picture of my childhood, I'm on the farthest, the one farthest on the right, the really cute one. Um, <laughs> our home in New, we grew up with four homes. Our home in New York City was like Grand Central Station. And um, there were, between the four homes, about 100 employees spread throughout. People bustling in and out. Of course, there were maids, there was a housekeeper, there was a, butler and a laundress. These were the people who were my friends. They were people who taught me how to knit, how to uh, cook. Well, my mother really taught me how to cook, but they had time to listen. So, um, I never want to just rush by the people who helped in the house. Um, but in addition, on any given day, during the building of my father's Chase Manhattan Bank career, he could bring up to 10 people home for cocktails. And, you know, we had maybe four dinner parties a week. And they would include the likes of King Faisal, then from the, the then former um, King of Saudi Arabia or the Prime Minister of Japan. Yes, it's true, we had Arthur Rubenstein in our house at age eight. I her, first heard him. At age 13, he came to um, our place in the country and I was so excited to see him again. This time he was coming to hear Alicia de la Rocha, the world famous pianist, and I ran up to him, I underscore I was 13, it was a little embarrassing, and I said, I'm so glad to see you. I just want you to know I play piano too. I think I said, I play Chopin too. (laughs) So in any case, oh, where's my book? Oh, thank you. Um, I thought I would take a moment here and pause to read you an excerpt from Feeling Different as a Family. I'm going to read you three excerpts, one for each part of my talk tonight. So this one takes about four minutes. This is from Feeling Different as a Family, Chapter 5. In the 60s, it was embarrassing to be rich. It was even more embarrassing to be Rockefeller rich. I never saw a Toulouse-Lautrec in anyone else's bathroom or a Cezanne portrait hanging over their living room couch. We were different. My father did not play ball, and he never took out the garbage. I first saw a black and white TV in our house when I was five and we only watched it as a family on the first night. I learned early on that we were among the last families to own a TV and to still have maids and finger bowls. When friends our age came over for dinner and the main course was replaced with purple glass finger bowls served on top of doilies on early 19th century spode plates, My siblings and I watched our wide-eyed friends shifting in their chairs. Sometimes we told them with forced, straight faces that we were supposed to drink out of the bowls. (laughs) Our mother had taught us that practical jokes and humor were levelers. They also relieved stress. Occasionally, we lifted the round bowls to our mouths as if to drink from them just to see if our guests would follow suit. My mother felt like an outsider amid her husband's family. She taught us through her discomfort to fit in wherever we went by wearing understated clothing, carrying our own bags, not driving fancy cars, and making friends regardless of others' wealth or status. We enjoyed going barefoot, hunting for mussels and mushrooms, getting our hands dirty, and wearing one another's hand-me-downs. She encouraged these behaviors as a means of normalizing us and liberating herself from the constraints of aristocracy. My father was less complicated. He didn't seem to question whether or not he fit in. When asked how he felt about the name, he said, I like being a Rockefeller and expected us to feel the same. Somehow he also recognized that people of every background, race, and religion belonged equally dad treated the chauffeur or taxi driver the same as a king or secretary of state. We learned these values from him daily, observing how he smiled and held out his hand to greet the butler when he arrived home, as genuinely as he shook the hand of King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. Friends of my parents told me recently a time when they were sailing with with them in the Gulf of Maine. The weather turned bad and they had to find a safe harbor for the night. They were were near the Bay of Fundy where the tides can rise up to 52 feet. It was near low tide as they pulled up to the pilings of the dock. My father climbed some 40 feet up a ladder. He was welcomed at the top by a toothless lobsterman wearing dirty fish scented foul weather gear. My father reached out his hand as usual, hello, I'm David Rockefeller. The man looked him up and down and replied in a thick Maine accent, well, I'll be damned. (laughs) My mother and their friends followed up the ladder and were soon in conversation with the lobsterman. After exchanging stories about the weather and how they came to be there, the man invited him up to his house to meet his wife of 40 years. My parents and friends returned an hour later with a blueberry pie in hand for their supper and exclaimed that nothing had ever tasted so good. The next day they delivered a bottle of wine and a jar of homemade jam in exchange for their generosity. These were the kinds of visits that my parents told us about at the dinner table. The message was always the same. Treat everyone with humility and respect. There was another unspoken message underlying it. We are the American royalty. We have an extraordinary inheritance of both money and service. Do not disappoint. So let me just come to this. So as I said, New York City was on the weekdays and Terrytown was on the weekends. My mother made sure that we had all kinds of animals along with horses, um, cows, chickens, pigs. We had a donkey that when it was little she brought it home in the back of her station wagon. And occasionally, we would find an orphaned deer. Um, Once we did, actually, in my early childhood and took care of it for a year. Um, During the winter, we had a home in St. Bart's down in the French West Indies. And we were the first, my family was the first outside family to buy a place. And um, we actually, or they hired, stonemasons to come and train the people down there so that they weren't bringing people from outside, they were building the economy from within. Today it's more like a suburb of Paris. Um, our summers in Maine were just the best, and they, they were the times when we built our days from scratch with our imaginations, uh, building things like rafts, lean-to's, moss arrangements, And this was when our family had most often its meals together and my mother would tell us stories, partly as a way of keeping us under control. So we come to part two, which is, uh, sorry I went a little too fast. Uh, Why did I write my memoir? Well, there were two reasons, and one of them was my mother's stories around the table of such things as shooting a bear on their honeymoon As I've said to other groups, it's not my idea of romance, but it's what they did, or somehow I don't even know why, but that was a story. Another thing, my mother would go off on the boat alone, usually when it was high winds, 30 to 40 miles an hour, and it was the way that she um, brought her own sense of equilibrium back from the pressures of being married into this family, six children, many houses and responsibilities and people. So that was the one reason I got the background of storytelling. But then when the last of our sons, we had two sons, and when our second son went off to college and both of them left home, I was looking for a way to comfort myself, having become a full-time mother I went through that inevitable identity crisis and was looking for a way to uh, bring the memories of the closeness that I had so enjoyed back onto the page. So most of the stories I wrote for the next two years were about an experiment during the 1840s of living as if, uh, living on our farm in Vermont as if in the 1840s. A time when there was a lot of handwork. So we made, grew, and um, and froze and processed our own food and made butter and candles. The boys cared for two goats, as well as chickens and rabbits. We made patchwork pillows, wrote and produced a play for the neighbor with the neighborhood children. All of this was a wonderful time and I loved writing the stories, but when I finished them I realized it was too close to their childhood to publish them. It would be a little embarrassing. So I dug deeper. I went back to my own childhood, the place, the origin of both good and difficult times. Times where I didn't feel I belonged, where I, being the youngest by three years, often felt extraneous. Um, As I said, I struggled to belong in my family, I'm on the far right there. And part of this was that I was a more naturally emotional person, I was more outward in my expression of emotions at a time in the 50s when that wasn't considered very attractive and certainly not if you're a member of this family. So. In looking back, what I've discovered is, I had a desire to connect from the time I was two. But I also have seen that the difficulties I had in trying to connect with my siblings, which failed for the most part back then, were also responsible for helping me develop my courage, my inner strength, my resilience, that reflect who I am today. And I'm now going to read you an excerpt from another chapter called Through a Door in the Woods, as an example of some of the more difficult times and the building of resilience. Fog curled over the trees as we started up a trail in Acadia National Park at the end of an August afternoon. My sister Abby was in the lead, barefoot as always. Before she left the driver's seat of the car, I had noticed her stuffing two ripe bananas into the army surplus backpack she wore under her long mane of brown hair. No one else was carrying any food. I was 10 at the time of this foray into the wild with my four older siblings. Abby, Neva, Peggy, and Richard were 19, 18, 14, and 13. David probably felt too old to be interested in such an adventure. I idolized him and felt safe in his presence. But on this night, he was probably out with friends after racing his sailboat. I wished that he were here. I had never before been invited on an expedition with my siblings, and I went with mixed emotions. I was glad to be included, but frightened by their style of adventure. I liked to know the plan. They were happiest when there wasn't one. Abby was a student at the New England Conservatory of Music. By 1962, she had already crafted her identity as anti-establishment. She disagreed with most of what our father and his friends stood for and spent hours arguing heatedly with him about the flaws of capitalism. She had a significant influence on her next three youngest siblings, and I later learned that she was hurt I wouldn't fall sway as well. I often heard her lecture to them in the playroom as I was trying to sleep, denouncing the Vietnam War, lambasting the establishment and blaming our parents. I was not part of those conversations, but they splintered my family and frightened me. I was not old enough to be an equal player, so I sided with my parents as the best chance of feeling safe and defended them against my siblings. This did not endear me to my siblings. In retrospect, I think Abby brought a healthy balance, a challenge to our family's image in the world. She kept us questioning; none of us wanted to be seen as part of that establishment. We siblings took a while to get organized, and the sun was setting um, and, and the sun was setting. We planned to sleep out, but the incoming fog was chilly, and none of us had brought more than a sweater for warmth. We had no sleeping bags, only three water bottles, and so far as I could see, only two bananas for the four of us. <laughs> Abby believed in roughing it, and she wanted the rest of us to fall into line like the comrades of the Communist Party she had been studying. Going barefoot symbolized freedom to Abby. I wondered if it was her gesture of empathy for common laborers of the world who had no shoes. Abby's toughened feet felt their way without hesitation. Peggy was next, then Richard and me, with Neva taking up the rear. I was the only one still wearing shoes and I was glad for my sneakers as others blurted, ouch, when they stubbed their toes on a root or rock. I liked being barefoot but I felt too vulnerable to take mine off, afraid we would lose our way and be hungry and cold. Neva made up stories to keep me going. Peggy followed at Abby's heels with Richard in tow. Rock cairns near the top of the mountain marked the path to Sergeant Pond and loomed up out of the fog. We came to a signpost, and Abby rummaged around in her pack to find a flashlight. It didn't provide much comfort. I was sure we were lost. I felt lost in so many ways in my life already. Night hiking with my daredevil sisters and brother was a nightmare, I started to sob. Stop being such a crybaby, Abby snapped. Her words stung. I had no choice but to put my head down and keep going. It felt like an hour before we reached the pond. No one else was there, and it was way past my bedtime. The other four ripped off their clothes and jumped into the cold water. Yelps of glee echoed off the surrounding cliffs in the dark. I hugged myself at the edge, longing to feel the glorious freedom of being naked in water, but worrying that a bear might steal our bananas. Four in the water, one on shore. They were too involved with one another to notice if the bear ate me instead. I longed for my brother David, If he were here, he would have brought more bananas. I scooped water into my hands and washed the silent tears from my face." So, in the end, as it is with all of us, and this is a picture taken from old fields, (laughs) it was the hard times and experiences I had repressed or denied that gave me the ability to live into my essence. So whoever I wanted to be with, I brought onto the page. Writing writing fulfilled a lifelong desire to connect and belong to something larger than myself. It helped me prepare for five rejections before finding my agent, and 24 rejections before finding my publisher, Blue Rider, of Penguin Group. Yes, even Rockefellers get rejected stories of hard times with family of of origin, balanced with happy ones, um, about the family that Paul and I created. And in this light, Paul and I combined my Rockefeller family traditions with his Jewish ones. Together, we made a conscious effort to be really present with our sons. And one way was to have only two. So I come to my final excerpt before I tell you what I've learned. This one relates to the blending of spiritual traditions and my choice to expand to Judaism in raising our sons. I am not always comfortable with religious rituals, but Shabbat holds special meaning for me. It honors the role of the feminine in reflecting upon and balancing our lives. It is considered by many to be the most important Jewish holiday. Paul introduced Shabbat into our household after we were married. He showed me how to say blessings to the Eternal for giving us light, granting us the fruit of the vine, and providing the seeds of earth that sustain us. The prayers remind us to set aside time for being and reflecting in the midst of so much doing. I breathe in my love of life, and praise God for gifts of family, friends, nature, and food. The end of Sabbath at sundown on Saturday is called Havdalah. It is intended to bless all the five senses. We hear the blessings, taste the wine, smell the sweet spices, see the flame of the four-stranded candle, and feel its heat. The mystics say we gain an extra soul during Shabbat, and that it flees when we resume our regular work. The blessing of this moment at the end of the Sabbath is as soothing to me as the final purple hue across the evening sky. Havdalah means to divide. The ceremony marks the end of the Sabbath and ushers in a new week by separating the special holy day from other days of the week. We gather again in the dining room table at just as darkness descends. Paul takes a sip of wine from our silver marriage cup and passes it around, saying, and this is a quote, the wine symbolizes the joy in our hearts after a day of rest. The spirit of wine is supposed to help us see beyond the misery in the world, while inspiring us to help in whatever way we can. I think to myself, this is one of the ways values gets passed down. Next, Paul lifts the ceremonial spice box and sniffs the sweet bay leaves, spicy cinnamon, and cloves. He passes the perforated silver box around, saying, the sages tell us that smelling the spices refreshes our souls. I take a deep breath through my nose. Sweetness abounds. Adam and Danny turn off the lights and strike a match in the dark to kindle the four-stranded Havdala candle. We read together by its dancing light. The Havdala candle, unlike other candles, is composed of four intertwined strands. By itself, each strand would make only a little light, but the four burning together make a great flame. The four of us draw close around the candle. I feel the warmth of the flame like our family. Paul takes the candle and douses it in a plate with a hundred-proof vodka. The dance of light begins. No one speaks. We watch the playful flame diminish as it evaporates the alcohol. It invites us into silence like the last bird song at the end of day. The flame sputters, kicks, twirls, takes a bow, and expires. We say in unison, bye-bye, Shabbat. And for a moment longer, we savor the stillness. So finally, I was going to be on that then, but we come to what have I learned. And writing my memoir has been such an amazing teaching. And one of the things is that family is what shapes us. It's our first mirror, even though the reflection is often inaccurate. I can leave my family. Oops, sorry. That was the what have I learned. I must have, I must have pressed the wrong button anyway. So I can leave my family, but it won't leave me. Until I heal my early relationships, I will repeat them in my marriage, with my children, with my friends and colleagues. We tend to put the faces of those we have been injured by onto those. With whom we encounter later in life, and it, so it continues until we heal that relationship. So um, I'm a little confused as to which one I'm having. I think anyway, um, as I was saying, number three is that we all need a roof over our heads and food on the table. But ultimately, my belief is that self-worth is more important than net worth. Another lesson I learned is that I don't need to do it all by myself. When I started the book, I thought, well, I have to write this all by myself. I'll finish it in six months and I'll be done six years later. With so much help you wouldn't believe so many people, most of all my husband, um, were the making of something that became bigger than me. And I would say that real richness and power come not from the amount of money, but from our connection to each other and to ourselves and one another. I love this one. I've found that the deeper I've gone inside myself in writing these stories, the more connected I am to all humanity. My stories become your stories. They're our stories. And finally, attention comes and goes. But love remains forever. And thank you so much for listening. I would love to entertain any questions. Thank you. So, um, I also have a really Fun exercise to do with all of you. It takes only a few minutes. And I know that I have several playful people in the back of the room, but they're probably sprinkled throughout. That's just a teaser. But meanwhile, do you have a question? Oh, okay. I guess can we pass that around to people? Is it handheld? Because that might be easier than, say, if someone over there has... A question.
2: I, I would assume that some members of the family were nervous about your writing memoir. Is that accurate? And, and what was the family reaction before, during, and after, and how did you get that?
1: Thank you. It's a very logical question and one that I'm proud to answer. The process of writing the book required that I go back to my family of origin, that I work things through with each of my five older siblings and i vetted each chapter on that included them with them before it went to print so there wasn't a family member that wasn't included um, beforehand to be sure that it was going to be okay with them and in only one case did i find that some of the things i'd said maybe were an exaggeration of something i needed to work on And in claiming that, it further healed that relationship. So my guess is that right now, they're still wondering how I'm answering questions. Um, They're not in control. But they know that I have nothing but the deepest love and highest respect for them and our family. So thank you.
2: Um, The other sets of cousins, were you rivals or or competing in any way. I'm thinking particularly of Michael, the only Rockefeller I ever knew.
1: Oh, he was a first cousin. He was the twin to my cousin, Mary Morgan. Yes. She just wrote a beautiful book about the loss of a twin. Look up Mary Morgan. Thank
2: you. Yes,
1: or Mary Morgan Rockefeller. He was a very
2: serious young man. He was an ethnologist. Yeah, and uh, maybe not everybody here knows, but he disappeared. Yeah. Um, and in New was, Guinea. Yeah, New Guinea, and uh, uh, Nelson made a, a big contribution to the Met and the whole area of the building dealing with the South. The Michael sea.
1: Rockefeller Wing in the Metropolitan right, Museum right. from artifacts that Michael collected at only the age of 23. Amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah, we still miss him.
2: And thank you. I think your writing is beautiful.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Anyone else? Yeah, go for it. Hi. Um, Out of all the places that you lived, which would you say is your favorite? Maine. Hands down. Okay. (laughs) Do you want to know why? Because we were so free. And as I I showed that picture of building the raft or being out on my brother being out on the raft. And we've also built a cabin on an island, a prefabricated cabin. It took about two summers with my next oldest brother and sister, and me and my parents. So it was a time of real family fun. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes? I'm sure I can hear you. I was wondering.
0: Um, with all that you've learned in it, uh, with the book, yeah, did your husband or sons learn anything about you that they didn't know before?
1: Learn about me that yes. they didn't know? Did my yes. husband or sons? Yes. Wow, Paul, was there any stone unturned? <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I'll have to ask my sons of that. They're not here, sadly. Um, There must have been a few things. Let me see if I can recall any that they wouldn't. You know, when I was growing up, we used to beg my mother to tell us the same story over and over and over again. She was such a good storyteller. And I always wondered why our sons didn't ask me to. And I was a little insulted. (laughs) You mean you don't want to hear it again? And I think that the difference was that I was fortunate to be able to be present to them in other ways in addition to storytelling, whereas storytelling was one of the main ways we really got to connect with my mother. So I haven't exactly answered your question, but are there any others? I do want to save time for this really fun exercise, but I see another question there. Hold on, I'm going to get a drink of water. Oh, hi. hi. I would just like to know why you wanted to go to boarding school because, like, you know, everyone has different reasons why and, you know, oh. so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, everyone does have their reasons, or at least the parents do. And... <laughs> <laughs> but in the case of my parents, the school I went to before Old Fields was really my first home away from home. In fact, the Horta Bays will attest to the fact that I was an incessant advertiser for North Country School. And I was so obsessed with how important it was to me that I talked about almost nothing else and I managed to introduce the headmaster of Oldfields to the headmaster of my former school. That was like one of my best days because I was sure that my former headmaster would somehow have all his wisdom to seep right into this current one. And it wasn't too successful, but it was great to introduce them. So the reason I went away was that I didn't read a story about this, but I have them in the book. Uh, as the youngest of six, I grew up with a lot of fear. I couldn't compete. I couldn't be as good. I wasn't accepted. I didn't belong. And Thankfully, in my later years of working with social and emotional learning, and I actually am credited in Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, with introducing him to the idea, Um, because I'd had a career before my sons in starting a mind-body health organization. In any case, Daniel Goleman has told us all now about the amygdala response, the primitive lizard brain in our mind, in in our head that when we become overcome with fear, it just shuts us down. We can't think. I would be in Mr. Horder Bay's chemistry class utterly terrified. I couldn't think. I couldn't remember. I couldn't recall. I couldn't even learn. It was a waste. It was such a terrible waste. But my mother had the wisdom to know that there were other kinds of intelligence and other ways to learn. So prior to Oldfield, she sent me to a farm school in the upper New York State, where it was as important to be able to um, dig potatoes well as it was to ride a horse or as it was to climb a mountain. And it taught me that it doesn't really matter where you begin in life, just begin. And that was probably one of my most important early childhood lessons. Um, and so since I was, and I was actually uh, almost reparented at North Country, it was, a, I started life over. So it was a wonderful decision of my mother's and probably very hard because I was their last. <clears throat> and once I was gone, well, I kept going. <laughs> but I haven't regretted it. One last? Yes?
2: Um, I heard, uh Uh, um, Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia, I guess that is one of your um,
1: first cousins? I believe she, nope, she has to be more distant. She, um, I think that she descends. Oh, Jay. Oh, Jay and Sharon. Sorry, I thought you said Sarah, and I figured she must be on the Williams side. I didn't know her. Jay and Sharon. Jay is my first cousin. Yes, Senator from West Virginia. Well,
2: and... And I also know that um there's a Rockefeller who I believe was Governor of New York, maybe that was an uncle of yours who Nelson um, was my uncle and he was um i believe considered for vice president
1: yes, he was in fact, he became vice president by default
2: right okay um what was it what What was it like as I know you talked about Vietnam and your older sister mm. being political, but with your family being involved in politics. Did that? Um, did you have any personal feelings about that and how they got involved, and um, you know how how your family reputation was was intertwined with that?
1: Well, yes, certainly. Um, the worst time was when my uncle Nelson got involved in Attica, the prison, and that was a disaster. And we were all ashamed, embarrassed. That uh, was a pretty grim time. Um, my uncle could be a bully. And it's not partly how he got to where he did, and it's partly the lesson of that is that he's helped the rest of our family recognize how important it is to help children to not bully each other and that if we start teaching kids early in school how to resolve conflict creatively, and there's a chapter in my book called Heart Talks, um, in which when our sons were two and four, we taught them a method of um, resolving conflict that was so successful that when our youngest son was away at college. He went to Chicago for um, one of the breaks to do social work with a group of others and there was a kind of an uproar that occurred with his Ethiopian roommate and a woman from I don't know where in the United States and they got into an argument about what they would call sexism and it escalated quite quickly and my son finally intervened and said they had just been to visit the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning that day in Chicago, which is the organization I co-founded with Daniel Goleman and others, to promote good conflict resolution skills, self-understanding, respect for others, good listening skills. They would just been there, and here they were having an argument, and my son Danny said, guys, what did we learn today? Oh, well, but that doesn't really apply to us. Well, actually, it does. And he led them through the same process. I don't think I'll give it all away here. It's a really interesting thing of how you tell what you didn't like, how it made you feel, and what you would have preferred. It's as simple as that. One, two, three. And he got them to do it, and by the end they were crying in each other's arms. (laughs) And he overheard the girl calling her boyfriend saying, I don't know what happened, but it was just like the most amazing thing. And all I knew is I was really angry at him, and the next minute I was crying and I understood. (laughs) So there are good ways to move through these things, even with bullies. Um... Can I I, ask ask you one more question? Sure, sure. I mean, I shouldn't be the one determining. You tell me when you think this is the last one. Well, I have time for this little exercise it takes. Okay, good.
2: Um, You mentioned Sarah. I I was wondering um, who Sarah is.
1: No idea. You tell me. Okay. (laughs) I I was going to (laughs) guess.
2: And the other thing I wanted to ask, um, what is it like... Um, you, you said that your um, family um, donated money for a um, national park. I think you said. Oh yes, can several. You, can you can you talk more about that and possibly about how, um, what kind of perspective you have on ph- philanthropy, being uh, being um, a Rockefeller?
1: It's a great question, and thank you. Um, I'm extremely proud of my grandfather for his love of nature and. How that passion ended up providing all of us with opportunities in nature that we might not have had. He um, gave the money for Grand Teton National Park, for the Smokies National Park, for Acadia National Park, for part of Yosemite Park. Uh, there are some others, but those are the key ones that, like, that's enough already. Um, he also created the carriage roads in Acadia National Park by personally walking through the woods and marking himself where the trails would go. And during the 30s, when uh, jobs were scarce and the Depression was in sway, he, for about 10 years, 10, 15 years, employed 100 people to build those roads. And they put these big boulders along the side of them. He personally loved to carriage drive, which I do too. And these huge boulders that would sometimes be sharp pointed were called, were dubbed Mr. Rockefeller's teeth. <laughs> so I'm very, very proud of that aspect. What was the other part? Oh, yeah. By my own philanthropy. Oh, yes. Thank you. So that's a good place to end. So through the sense of responsibility and coming to understand myself. I was a late bloomer, but eventually passions boiled up first in the mind body health field, social and emotional learning, preservation of land and then, when our boys left home, Paul and I created the Growald family fund and spent about six months with our philanthropic advisor and decided that since we don't have the resources in our generation that my forebears did, and there it continues to decrease unless by some stroke of luck, we do something that's like I sell about a million and three million books, then I can really do something. Um, but we chose to stem climate change as our mission. And specifically to reduce our goal was to reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2010, 2020. And I'm happy to say that the car when we started this project, we decided the best strat- tactic was to stop new coal-fired power plants from ever being built because every one that's built lasts at least 50 years and it emits as much coal or carbon as 100,000 cars, new cars on the road every year. At the time we began our project, 2006, no money had gone into stopping them. We were the first grant to Sierra Club, and we insisted, in addition, that they create a um, that they create a a business plan, which we helped them with. Six years later, out of 200 proposed coal-fired power plants, 170 have been stopped from ever being built. A movement has been started. There's now more than $90 million going into this field and new forms of energy are replacing them. Our biggest leverage coup is th- is that while well, we gave $150,000 as our initial grant to Sierra Club, uh, six years later when Mayor Bloomberg was looking from New York City, was looking to find an organization and a specific cause in the environment that he really wanted to back. It was the business plan that we had funded that caught his attention because it's measurable results. And when he saw the results, our $150,000 became his $50 million. That was really exciting. And I wish I had my son's um, summary of the amount of carbon that's been reduced in the atmosphere since we and now many others have started but it's a thrilling project because we can't give to every individual who needs help as much as my heart cries for that but what we are doing is giving to the generations to assure a healthier and safer planet for our children and grandchildren
0: Thank you.
1: Okay. Let's see if I have this. Ah, yes. So, I have a really fun thing to end with. A friend of mine, she actually works in the social and emotional field, Linda Lantieri, she does a lot of work with. Um, conflict resolution. But she works with kids and adults. And she took quotes from my book. There are about 50 of them. And they're not all from me, but uh, some of them are. And what I'm going to do is there are about 20 in each of these. I'm going to pass these envelopes out. Or perhaps, Pat, you'd help me. Um, I, just what you need to do, we'll take the clips uh, off. Try with those, those 50. I think that may be enough. Um, if we need more, I'll pass out more hand out no just hand the envelopes let people take their quotes don't look at the quotes just pull right from the envelope whatever so you can keep passing along there you do one there and we will do one over here just take anyone that comes to you and pass it along and to make it faster so keep taking you're going to be able to keep these quotes I do need the envelopes back but um, you're going to be able to keep these quotes, read them to yourself, and decide for yourself as you read them whether you think your quote needs to be heard for the benefit of the whole room. Some of them may seem too personal, some may be not relevant, others may just hit it right on the head for you. You need one still. Somebody here needs a, we need them here. But let's see, I think we're gonna have plenty. There you go. If anybody who doesn't have a quote yet, keep your hand up and we'll get an envelope to you. Ooh. Well, well then take one and pass it right along. Don't hold on to it. There should be, and every every envelope has twenty to start. Yes, that's to give you choice. So you just take whatever one, and that's yours to keep. And does anyone still not have a quote? Oh, a few people back there. Um, Here. Is there anyone else that still needs one? Otherwise, the uh, envelope collectors could collect them and bring them back to me, please. So if you have your quote, as I said, take a moment, read your quote. If you feel that your quote wants to be heard or shared with the whole room, please raise your hand. I'm not going to call all of you, but I will call a few. So please raise your hand if you would like, if you feel that your quote should be shared in this room. Okay, would you mind coming up here? Just, you won't be alone. Someone else? Yes, back there and to your left. Both of you? Karen, did you put your hand up or not? Okay, we've got four. Is there? Yes, Roland, come on up. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, another. Come on up. Six. I could take one more if there's anybody. You come right up. Wonderful. All right, now here comes the really fun part. So, We're going to be reading the quotes in order from closest to me to farthest. Don't share your quotes with each other. But what I want you to do before you read is to, oh good, there's someone else who has one. He has to share. Would you like to? That's fine. Oh yeah, you see, you have to. So what I want you to now do, this group, is feel into your quote and decide if the order in which you're standing is as you wish it. In other words, do you feel like yours needs to be the first? Does somebody else feel like theirs needs to be the first? No, no, don't, no, you don't need to talk. No talking. Just move to where you think it needs to be. This is going to be the first reader, and where you are is the last reader. So you don't need to speak. But if you feel like yours is the first, come up here. And if someone else feels like theirs is the first, they might even trade places. Sometimes it happens several times. And there are reasons. You'll find out. So this gentleman feels his needs to be the first. Is anybody else um, you feel like you're in the right place? Think about it. Everyone else? Pretty set on where you are? All right. Now, where is that? Do I have it? Yes. Perfect. So if you're all set, what I'm gonna ask the audience to do is not to clap until the end because what we want here is to hear the flow of the quotes. And don't worry If there could sometimes even be a replication, there could be a duplication of the quote, it just might mean it needs to be heard twice. There's no wrong, and it's all right. So sir, if you would begin. Thank you. Thank you. My quote says, acceptance, even in the face of disagreement, is the difference between friends and foes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Acceptance, even in the face of disagreement, is the difference between friends and foes. Thank you. And just pass it on. I I I just thought this was very appropriate. Although it was, you know, it's a timeless quote. With everything going on in the world today, I think we have to embrace it. Thank you. And as tempting as it is, until we get through to the end, you're going to be the only one who gets to say why it was so important to you right now. Because what we want to do is we want to first hear the flow, and then I invite anyone else. Okay. Okay, thank you. You want me to stay here? Yeah, absolutely. Stay right there.
0: Burdens carried over time can feel as natural as a backpack up a steep trail. Only after we lift them off do we leave the lightness of being. Or we know the lightness of being. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It might be possible to make things happen the way you want if you're having enough fun. <laughs> Treat everyone with humility and respect. Save one third, spend one third, give away one third. It's easy to be vulnerable to anger. It's another thing to be vulnerable to love. Burdens carried over life, carried over time, can feel as natural as a backpack up a steep trail. Only after we lift them off do we know the lightness of being. Children sense the truth. Uh,
1: <laughs> thank you all. So did any. Of the others, of you have anything you wanted to add to why you loved your quote, you don't need to. But if, but like this gentleman, if any of you feels you really want to, it's interesting that two were the same. There must be some burdens needing to be lifted from this crowd. Yes. Yes.
2: The reason why I like kind of like mine is because um, the picture you showed when, when you
0: to Israel saying is. Why did you ask me, Lord, why are the two only one step? What's the preference? It's because, my child, I carried you when you were young and you carried your burden for you.
1: Mm, That's so nice. Thank you. Anyone else?
0: So, so my quote was it's easy to be vulnerable to anger, it's another thing to be vulnerable to love. Seems self evident. I mean, it's just so true, isn't it? That yeah. we just need to open ourselves to love, and sometimes that's so hard to do. Yeah. Thank well, you. Thank, you. thank you. Okay, I think we did it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.